Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. We are back. It's been a minute, more like nearly two months. I need a little time to manage a few major career decisions, which maybe I'll delve into more deeply on a future podcast. But the blog is back. The Telling the Story podcast is back. And we are returning with a powerhouse guest. Before we get to that guest, three quick requests. First, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download them. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Second, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. A good review is the best thing to help this podcast jump up into more people's feeds. So if you like what we do here and you want more people to hear it, please submit a kind review. And finally, check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. It is a how-to guide for those in local TV who do it all, shooting and editing their own stories. It's got advice for the best from the best one-person crews in the business. It's a hot item for your back-to-school journalist checklist, for your uh, special back-to-school journalist out there. That's The Solo Video Journalist, available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the publisher's website. Okay. Now to my guest. This man is a storytelling legend. He worked on every major CBS News program from Sunday morning to 60 minutes to 48 hours for seven years. He was the photojournalist with Steve Hartman on the famed Everybody Has a Story series. He spent 38 years in broadcast journalism and is a professor of practice now of broadcast and digital journalism at Syracuse University. Les Rose, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Matt, thanks. This is like a bigger honor than, you know, winning the lottery. This is so great. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I don't believe a word of it, but I appreciate you saying that. Let me just uh, set the tone here for everybody listening. I reached out to you last week, Les, about doing the podcast, and here is what you responded on Facebook. Hey, pal, thanks so much. Sounds great. Booked Tuesday, I'm seeing Cheap Trick and Foreigner in concert. That was followed by three exclamation points. Cheap Trick, my 44th time. Really? Then in parentheses, Rolling Stones, 38. Anyway, Wednesday and beyond would be fine. So if you want to know the Les Rose experience, that's a pretty good window into what you're getting with this podcast. And we are recording this now a week later. Les, how was the show? Uh, the show was decent. I was actually a, a little disappointed. I, You know, they, they opened for Foreigner, and of course I have a Cheap Trick bias but here's the deal if you go see Foreigner this summer. They have one original member left. It's Mick Jones. He's the lead guitarist and, and co-writer of the songs. But I saw Foreigner long before you were born, Matt, in in the you know 70s, early 80s. And I got to tell you, they stunk up the room. They, oh, they played man. it by the note. But, but um, Mick and his six buddies now, they call themselves Foreigner, but it's like more of a great tribute band. Um, they, they sang their hearts out and played their hearts out. So here's the deal. The new foreigner, one original member, the old foreigner, they stunk, but they wrote the songs. So, um, and, and cheap trick brought it. And, uh, by the way, I was at another concert last night. Um, I saw my morning jacket and, uh, as well as, uh, um, Cheryl Crow and they both opened for Willie Nelson. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's all you can say. Les, your concert stats are, are very impressive, I must say. Quite, quite good. Well, 
Um, I feel actually I feel sorry for people that don't have a passion. Um, and and clearly uh, photojournalism and telling stories certainly is and teaching is. But in, in my spare time, I like both kinds of music, rock and roll. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's get to uh, the journalism stats before we get way too off the off the rails on concerts. Les, in your career, one National Edward R. Murrow Award, five Emmy Awards, countless memorable stories with the great Steve Hartman and others. You and I met last month in Asheville, where you were the keynote speaker at the Sound of Life Storytelling Workshop. Such a great session. You gave wonderful advice and, of course, showed some just spectacular stories. And then, what many people don't know is that an hour after the workshop ended, you were still in the auditorium showing a lucky few your work. And before we get into anything in terms of talking about crafting and telling stories, before we get into any of that, I just want to commend you and and I would love for you to talk about what it's like to be in this business as long as you have and still have such obvious enthusiasm for the craft and for the field. Well, uh, you're very kind and truthfully, it happened once in Hawaii at the Hawaii Broadcasters and uh, once in Missouri, I believe. Um, I want to say a few other times where a janitor has actually come into the room to kick me out. Um, <laughs> uh, there were some dinners and, and drinks to be had uh, the night you saw me. But I, 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 if someone wants to see it, I consider that an ultimate compliment. So I'll be happy to um, show them uh, my work or anything they want to see. Uh, but I gotta say, it's I, when I describe the job to uh, my students at Syracuse, it's like you don't know where you're gonna go, what you're gonna learn, or or who you're gonna meet, you know. And and when you expand that times the number of years and the number of stories, granted, you're gonna you're gonna have days that kind of are work, you know. I covered OJ one, OJ by the Sea, and OJ goes to Vegas, um, and that felt like work. Uh, that that was. That was just like the same thing day in, day out. But but dear God, I mean, I, I just knew it was time to start helping out the next gen on a full-time basis. So that's what I wanted to do. When in, when in your career did you start really actively helping others? Because obviously now you're a professor and you do it full-time. But I would imagine, and, and I know from talking to others, that this is something that you've done on an individual level and at workshops like the one we were both at uh, for quite a while now. When did you really start seeing that as a way to, you know, continue to not just show your craft, but also influence others who want to do the same? You, you, you kind of go from a um, show and tell or, you know, um, occupation day at schools. I did one or two of those where, where uh, my alma mater uh, for undergrad, University of South Florida, brought me in. Um, my former colleague, Neil Vecino, a great reporter, now professor, and he brought me in to uh, kind of have me show some videos in class. And something happened in the middle of that. I quickly went from here are my greatest hits to here's what you can learn from each story. And I I got the bug really bad. And that expanded to doing seminars. Uh, Coming up in September, I I will be at my, I believe, 20th time at the Pointer Institute for... um, uh, power reporting with uh, the the great Al Tompkins. Al Tompkins and a friend named uh, Haley Bruick have both taught me so much about teaching. And um, and once when you get the bug, that's kind of it. And when you and now obviously you teach, and you're a professor of practice, and you see students who I am sure would love 
to know that in 40 years they will have that enthusiasm that you still have. What has been for you the, I don't know if it's just one thing or one secret to success that has enabled you to just feel, continue to feel that energy, that vibe, because so many in this business get burnt out very quickly, especially younger journalists these days. What is it, what is the thing that you tell others to kind of ensure them that, yes, you can love this business even after you've, you know, been in it for several decades? You, um, we tend to get isolated. I, you think that the only place your work is broadcast is either in your home when you see it, maybe online on your own laptop or perhaps at the TV station. But, but the, the damnedest thing will happen if you go to a Best Buy or something and you're walking in and you see 60 television screens all with something you did on it. <laughs> now, that sounds like ego feeding, but the truth is that's when you realize that your work is, is out there. And, and I don't do it for that. I, I do it because I, I look at people that really do have to work for a living. They put tar on top of roofs. They, they, they're gardeners and, and they're military and they work their tails off and they trust us to get it right, especially lately, to get it right and tell them what the heck happened because I'm representing the viewer wherever I go. By the way, uh, for those of you who are listening, I'm not sure if you're able to pick up the monstrous uh, bolts of thunder that are uh, that are coming into my microphone right now. I can see it on the levels on my audio. So if you're hearing thunder in the background, there is a monstrous storm going on right outside uh, my apartment window here in Atlanta. So just for a little clarification there, I'm looking at Les Rose just in a, a beautiful Syracuse, uh, not yet sunset, but uh, it is twilight and... There is not a drop coming down outside for you, Les. So glad to see you're loving it up in the... I've spent some time in western New York in the summer, and I know those are the best there are. Well, we, we have great summers, and the best falls anywhere on Earth. To kind of make up, you know, Syracuse, of the 48 states, we get roughly 140 inches of snow a year. There's actually a thing called the Golden Snowball Award. And <laughs> then for the most snow in the lower 48, because you can't count Alaska, but yeah... Um, it's like it's from the people to my colleagues at SU and I'm, I'm not sucking up to them. Um, but the truth is so many other schools I applied to and some rejected from said, yeah, you'll figure it out. You're on your own. And Syracuse has this program, um, the professor practice thing and other schools have it, but I have no fewer than three mentors who make sure I don't fall flat on my face. Hmm. Um, they, they said, um, they said, yeah, remember, teaching full-time is a whole different thing. And I said, I know what I don't know. Um, and that's part of my joy here. I got my master's at 53, and here I am, brand-new gig at 59, just turned 60. So it's just like whole new challenges. Mm. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is the legend, Les Rose, CBS News photographer and now professor of practice in broadcast and digital journalism at Syracuse. I want to get into uh, to what you're doing now and, and kind of your lessons for the future generation of journalists in a bit. But there's something I really wanted to talk to you about that I think really uh, is an important topic for anyone who is a, a broadcast journalist and a storyteller and and especially those that really... Uh, hew closely to what you might call the NPPA way. And uh, a quick anecdote as we get into it. So I'd watched plenty of pieces 
uh, of yours before seeing you speak at the workshop. But when I saw you speak in Asheville, I had a real epiphany. Here it is. The entire time that we had been there, uh, we had been hearing from people, including myself, who were stressing the building blocks of visual storytelling, your sequences, uh, holding a beautiful shot, getting cutaways to keep continuity. And then you go up there as the keynote, and every story you showed basically threw all of that out the window. Your stories, they're not loaded with sequences. They're not loaded with five natural sound pops in a row. They don't necessarily follow the rules. In fact, in some cases, they flat out break the quote-unquote rules. But they're all winners, and they're all so emotional and memorable, and they all center around moments. So I I wanted to talk with you about that because I just was floored by that, and I think it's such a worthy conversation as storytelling evolves and as the platforms evolve. So first of all, what's, what's your reaction to that assessment of your work? Well, I mean, we, we still strive for things like when you have a, an opening shot, it's best to have uh, motion, whether a human, a horse, or a car come towards you. Um, it kind of signals the brain that this is about to end, and we sure as heck try to have something going away at the end visually. The one thing that – and by the way, Steve Hartman uh, edits the stuff for both Everybody is a Story of Simon America and – you know, when we did 60 Minutes 2 for a while and now, of course, on the road. Wow. Um, so he edits at his home, um, actually two hours away from here, somewhere in upstate New York. And he I, I always joke that uh, he, you know, he claims he's a control freak. But the truth is he's a perfectionist. He really loves it. And and um, we figured out a long time ago that that professionals will say, oh, that's a jump cut. And we have a saying that if um, one jump cut is a mistake and several jump cuts are a technique. Wow, I just heard thunder. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. So several jump cuts are a technique. It really does look like a mistake if you have one jump cut, like what happened there. But when you pile it on, um, it kind of works. And you mentioned moments and a high school kid said, if I owned, if I owned a store in the mall, what would I call it? What would I be there for? And I said, I guess you could say I'm a merchant of moments because that's what matters when push comes to shove. So it really, I think that's a very good distinction because especially for younger journalists and storytellers watching or or listening to this and who watch your work and, and Steve's work, they might say, well, here, you know, these guys have jump cuts and, and they're not necessarily, you know, following all the things that you hear people talk about all the time. But I think there is a, a difference between not learning the rules and never following them and right. learning the rules and knowing how to break them with style. You, you got to figure out the right moment. Um, long before, uh, gosh, the, the show um, with Kevin Spacey, House of Cards. Yeah. Kevin in every episode will look at the camera and talk to the camera. And, you know, Steve, Steve did that with me, I want to say 23 years ago and he doesn't do it every piece, but if you know you're representing you as the reporter are representing the viewer on a feature story and your reaction can be pretty hysterical when, when someone from Alaska with $400 to his name um, says, you know, life is, um, life is long, but then again, it's short. Steve just turns to the camera and goes, okay. 
you know, um, and he kind of he he knows that. He, and here's the big difference between um, a lot of local news and and uh, a higher level of news is the reporters feature reporters tend to want to be the funny person. Um, that doesn't work. You have to let your subject be the funny person. And you're the you're the straight person. You're the one setting it up. And and that takes a little while to learn, but but that's pretty critical if you're going to have uh, any humor in your pieces, which they're feature stories. You're allowed to have some funny stuff, um, and that's so breaking the fourth wall and uh, jump cuts are two things right off the top. Um, oh, and another thing is, and this is really critical, hopefully for your listeners, is we learned a long time ago that the first thing a, a local news reporter wants to do. And quite often at the network is they want to get the interview out of the way. They want to interview the person first and then do the B-roll, right? That is when your subject is least familiar with the process, nervous about the camera, and you're not going to get an as good interview. So if you start out with a little bit of B-roll, whether it's making coffee or what have you, then do the sit-down interview and then do some mop-up for more B-roll, your stories will flourish and then they're very comfortable with you. I, uh, I think the thunder here in Atlanta actually makes your responses even more powerful, Les. <laughs> I am Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for those just starting out, how do you recommend, especially those who want to be great feature storytellers? And, and, you know, that was certainly, I would say, the majority of who we saw in Asheville. There were plenty of people who, you know, wanted, wanted to do great investigative work and whatnot. But so many of the people there, really, they want to be able to tell a great story that inspires and warms people's hearts. What are the building blocks? If it's not, you know, loading up on sequences and natural sound pops and that sort of things, what are, what are the building blocks? Well, first of all, most, most stories have a, have a decent open to create a little mystery at the top. And then of course the middle is devoted to information. Um, that's, that's whether it's a feature story or investigative or whatever, the bulk of the information is is that middle part the tough part is the why do i care um we heard that a lot in in Asheville and other places it's the why do i care and why does this matter to me and did you emotionally touch someone um the the truth is and this is the mantra if the viewer doesn't like your subject they're not going to like the story mm. don't like the subject they're not going to like the story clearly this doesn't work in political scandals and other such things but once when you'd make a connection, here's an example. Um, I saw one of those Air Force, you know, uh, journalism stories, quote unquote, at uh, DENFOS, the Defense Information School. And they do really good work. It's, it's obviously PR. They can't do controversial things. But I kept seeing these stories about, you know, guys that are champions of flying the F-16 or, uh, you know, a U.S. Coast Guard rescue and on and on. And... Uh, I said what I'm looking at, and, and try to remember this when you're doing um, a feature story. I said what I'm looking at is Superman without the cape, and or Superman with the cape, and what we need is without the cape. In other words, what makes Superman interesting is Clark Kent, um, because he represents us. So I will never be an F-16 pilot, but I can relate to him much more if I see him burning his kids' pancakes on a Sunday morning. Mm. Now mm. I've connected with him. And you might you and you provide that entryway to where right. you, know, you see the guy burning the pan, the pancakes, 
then maybe you do want to go on a ride and, and learn a little more about F-16 flying than you than you did 15 seconds ago. Yeah, and and all it really just takes a little extra time, even if you go for a car ride with a person. Um, so many feature stories are claustrophobic, meaning um, not just indoors per se, but lo- one location. And I understand you got to crank them out, especially if you're doing two or three stories a day. But literally, getting someone in a different environment of going around the block with them in the car. Um, and if you can remember, it's not just about one formal interview. You have to throw in an informal interview. And typically, they're more relaxed than, and that's when you get the really good stuff. Mm. Outstanding stuff, Les. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Les Rose, storytelling legend and now professor at Syracuse University. Les, I like to use this final section of the podcast as an advice section for younger journalists. And you are uniquely qualified in this area, not just because of your years of experience at the highest level, but because you are a professor who leads aspiring journalists as we speak, although not right now, you're on summer break. But the fall will come and new classes will arrive and and you will be someone who is watching them grow and helping them grow. What is, and and you've been doing it full-time a year now, what is the piece of advice that you give them that you feel they need to know that you feel they aren't receiving elsewhere? Well, clearly I'm, I'm uniquely qualified to give them some street survival. And the reason I was hired is they're, they weren't telling a story. They weren't writing with a camera. They absolutely knew how to interview, find a story, um, produce a story, but they got their video. Um, just kind of, I, I looked at some of their old work from a couple of years ago and it was good sometimes but not great you know you the the basics as we discussed the storytelling sequences but um the the two big things is one for visuals um you have to i always say 80 percent of my gig was anticipation you have to figure out what a human being is going to do before they do it you have to predict human behavior that's how you get moments make sense so if they can start developing that, and I got to tell you, this generation, I'm not saying kids these days, but this generation, think about this for a second. Before the iPhone and smartphones came out, we were actually had moments of boredom, meaning standing in line to get a coffee, um, waiting on a bus, uh, sitting in the airport. And those moments of boredom hurt for four or five minutes because you are bored, but then your creativity starts kicking in. And um, I, I, I really want them to be bored for just a moment and <laughs> then think of a way to come up with something creatively because our brain is occupied 24-7. I mean, I, I try to penalize them when they stare at their phones in class, but it's it's like crack, you know. They they just keep wanting to look at it, but but if they know that journalism matters, and they, and especially after the last election, whichever way you swing, you know, we're not fake news. And and something I do show them, and I showed you guys, is how many people have died um, in the past twenty five years uh, to tell truths and um, and tell great stories. And we're losing 50, 5-0 journalists a year to war or uh, mobsters or what have you. 50 journalists are dying every year. And if you don't do your best work, you're disrespecting them. Mm. 
You know, I think uh, one of the things that 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 you now have this perch, and and what it enables you to see is some of the the differences in aspiring journalists that maybe those who are who are working and maybe a bit removed from it uh, don't necessarily see. Like I know, you know, in Atlanta, obviously we have interns who who come to the station, and there we have a few with us now in the summer, but we really don't see working journalists until they're in their mid twenties. So I think. A lot of the trends in the field, there are things that professors are noticing earlier than the rest of us because you're seeing it. And and you mentioned like the, you know, just how the phones have impacted all of us. I would one thing I noticed in Asheville was just the number of college students who were there talking about the massive gender imbalance in college classes in journalism, where especially in TV, you see far more women than men and. Yet when they get into the industry, there is still that kind of gender imbalance that we talked about at the workshop where, you know, the the solo video journalist idea doesn't really cater to women as much as it should. Are are those the kind of things that you notice as well, being a professor? And, and, and are there things that you notice that maybe those who are in the business might not be catching as much? At, at both the high school level, I'm, I'm uh, on the board for Student Television Network, so I've taught a lot of high school kids and um, the advisory board. And then also, of course, at college, I've had classes 75% women. Um, I just had one that was 50%, 50-50, and it blew my mind because I'm like, how did this happen? But, but I'm old enough to remember the end of the smoke-filled newsroom days. And, uh, of course, nobody smokes anymore, which is great. But but it has really gone from where you have to have male-female anchors to female-female anchors that toss to a female weathercaster that toss to a female reporter in the field. And then you have a female sportscaster. Listen, I'm all for 100% uh, women in a newsroom, but... Um, you know, for the same reason it was bad to have all male voices and a few females in the newsroom, I, I just would like to see a little more parity. Um, and I feel that way about um, diversity. Um, there's a strange diversity that I've seen, not so much in Syracuse, but at other colleges where they all come from big cities. Like, obviously, up here we have New York City and uh, D.C. and on and on. But I would like to think that there could be some regional diversity within the newsroom. It, it doesn't matter your color, but how many people in your newsroom actually grew up near a farm or in a rural area, and yet we're perpetually doing stories uh, on either agricultural or um, the PTA or the NRA or whatever. Um, Al Tompkins has always pointed out that there's a disconnect between those of us covering stories and those of us that actually go to the PTA meetings. And, and he's got a great point. Do you think, uh, and there's no substitute for experience. So, you know, it, it is not the fault of a college journalist that she or he does, you know, not have uh, kids yet or anything like <laughs> that or where they grew up. Um, what can college journalists do to start to bridge that gap? I, I always tell them, think of what it's like to be the other. Um, if, if you're obviously sighted, then for a moment, feel like what it's like to be blind. I did stories in L.A. on blind surfing, for example, or which was fantastic. And it wasn't about the kids 
that were blind that were had this look of glory on their face as they're riding their first wave. But for me, it was the reaction, and it's almost always the reaction over the action. It was the reaction of seeing these surfer dudes who aren't exactly known for their social generosity helping out someone other than themselves for the first time. So that's a matter of being someone that you're usually not. I used to subscribe, and now I look at it online. I think there was a magazine called Latina Woman Business, or, of course, Jet or Ebony. I'm, I'm a white male, but I sure as heck want to see what's going on in these different worlds. So, so developing your anticipation and knowing what it's like to be the other will really help your journalism. And I would say this too. I think, you know, you talked about subscribing to various magazines and, and the influence that had on your work. I, I think we have never been in a time where, where we have never been in a time with greater diversity of voices in the landscape. And I think about podcasts. I mean, if you want, you can really find podcasts that reflect just about any background, whether it's race, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's gender, whether it's anything. You can really, you know, there are so many ways now to just open up your own mindset and open up your own variety of thought by understanding what others think. It is, it is, I think, very easy. I don't want to say very easy. Maybe that's wrong. But it is far easier than it was once was, and I don't know if enough people take advantage of that. And I, I think people know to you know maybe read the local papers like the local weeklies and not just your big city paper. But I don't know that journalists are necessarily reaching out for that diversity of background in addition to maybe the political diversity that they seek or the diversity of thought. My my students, have, I, um, Syracuse tends to lean a bit liberal. So one of the stories I wanted um, some of my students to do during this um, last or fall semester last year was to see what it was like to um, be a Republican student or a Republican teacher. It was almost like they were outnumbered, apparently, and and to hear their voice. Um, Al Tompkins always calls it the contrarian voice. But that's the one I respect the most, and it certainly takes place in my classroom. I, I just want – I mean, I, I can't say enough great things about diversity because it does matter. And at Syracuse, we have a huge initiative, not just for different people of color, not just for LBGTQ, but like I said, for city folks and regional um, and we're so much better off if, if we listen to the different voices and get outside our own Rolodex. All right. Les, this has been outstanding as always, and uh, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question, is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? But in honor of your appearance, I'm going to ask the question you told everyone at the Sound of Life workshop to ask at the end of interviews. If I knew you better, what would I have asked you? Um... <laughs> That's so unfair <laughs> uh, <laughs> to use my own tricks. Um, if you knew me better, what should you have asked? Um, I'm, I'm kind of a poster child for, uh, for dreams come true. If, uh, if you work your tail off long enough, I, I, and now there's a lot of people out there that work their tail off that never get a break. Um, you know, Nikon had an ad that said luck is what happens to the best prepared. Um, and I will say, uh, to, to end it, especially for, uh, young MMJs, 
is if you're covering a school board story or something that the assignments desk says, you know, just spray it, make it the best school board story anyone's ever seen. And then you'll have a skill set intact for when you get a real story. Very good stuff. And I honestly, I wish we had more time to really get into your backstory and your history because it, it is just as fascinating as the advice you provide now. But for now, I will simply say, Les Rose, thank you for everything. And thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my new book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.